As always, the Seahawks could always use an extra pass rusher or two. And with a top 10 pick in the 2022 NFL Draft, there's some intriguing pass rushers that could be available for them to select later this month. Rob Rang and I are going to be breaking down some of the top edge prospects and more on our latest installment of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Happy Wednesday to all of our listeners. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Got another jam-packed episode coming your way. Going to continue our multi-part series looking back at notable quarterback changes in Seahawks franchise history. Our listeners, just a little bit of warning, you might either want to get some earplugs or whatever helps you ease your stress today because we're going to be talking about the early 1990s when the Seahawks moved away from Dave Craig and went through about 80 quarterbacks in a three or four year span. So might be a little bit tougher listening than what yesterday's segment was. And then we're going to look at edge prospects the Seahawks might consider with their number nine overall selection as well as their two second round picks to bolster their pass rush. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. Only a handful of people get to play in the NFL, and there are a number of players that ultimately don't make it. They get released by their first team and end up not latching on elsewhere. Most of the time when players get released multiple times, it's game over. And then you have special stories like new Seahawks defensive end, Shelby Harris, who back in 2016 had eight workouts during that season and didn't get signed by any of those teams. He had been released six times before then by the Raiders and the New York Jets. So this was a guy that had a really hard time finding a job in the NFL. And at that point, as he told reporters yesterday, he was considering retirement, walking away from the sport. His wife pleaded him not to and to stick with it. Ended up being a really good decision because here we are now six years later after the Seahawks and seven other teams bypassed the opportunity to sign Shelby Harris. He has been one of the most underrated defensive linemen in the NFL now for more than half a decade, and he's going to bring a great deal of experience to this defense as they transition into a 3-4. He has starred in Vic Fangio's defense for the Broncos, so this is going to be natural for him. He's going to hit the ground running playing in a defense that he's very comfortable in. What a journey it's been to reach this point. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't want to oversimplify things. Obviously, Clint Hurts' version of the 3-4 defense is going to be different than Vic Fangio's. But at the same time, you you are bringing a player who does have that type of experience. Um, he also is a guy who has a great deal of resiliency, as you just kind of alluded to, Corb, with the fact that that he, he entered the NFL as a seventh-round selection out of Eastern Illinois. Um, you know, with, with the Las Vegas Raiders and then winds up bouncing around in several different spots uh, in the NFL before he really catches on with the Denver Broncos. And it, it's the fact that he did bounce around as much as he did 
Um, and you know, that, that to me just kind of speaks to his resiliency. He speaks to the, the type of leadership ability that he might be able to offer, um, be that coach on the field. People just kind of throw that term out there. And I, I don't know that that people really appreciate what that it means, especially when you're going to be going through the, the type of transition that the Seahawks are going to be doing this, this upcoming season. So to me, Shelby Harris is is just kind of thrown out there as like, oh, the, the Seahawks got Drew Locke for Russell Wilson. They got Noah Fant for Russell Wilson. They got all these draft picks for Russell Wilson, dot, dot, dot. And then somebody mentioned Shelby Harris. I would not be surprised at all if Shelby Harris winds up becoming a major factor for, for the Seahawks this upcoming season because, again, of that transition to a different defense. And the fact that Shelby Harris – I mean, he was a really good football player for Denver. And when the game was on the line, he was one of the guys that that really stood up and made big plays during that Vic Fangio era. And we talked about this in the past, Corbett. I mean, Vic Fangio and Pete Carroll go way, way back. Uh, I really believe that Shelby Harris was a guy that Seattle targeted as part of that Russell Wilson trade and that uh, it's all the different reasons that we can hear it uh, of why Seattle targeted him just with the fact that Shelby Harris had his conversation here with the Seattle media and the excitement, the enthusiasm that he is bringing to Seattle. That is part of the reason why they targeted him in the first place. Yeah, there was mutual interest and there has been for a long time. As I mentioned, there were eight teams that worked out Shelby Harris during the 2016 season. He didn't play a single regular season snap that year, but he kept going and going and going to these different workouts, and he just could not get signed. And the Seahawks were one of those eight teams. And then a couple of years ago when he was a free agent, the Seahawks brought him in for a visit, and it looked like he might come to Seattle a few years after that workout and sign a multi-year deal. Ultimately decided to go back to the Broncos. They offered him more money a better contract. So he was happy to stay in Denver, but there has been mutual interest between these two sides for a long time. Harris has heard nothing but good things about the Seahawks organization has wanted to play here. The Seahawks really like his versatility, a guy that can play one tech, three tech, he can play big end. He can do a number of different things. He's lined up all across the board for the Broncos, especially the last three years for Vic Fangio. He was even joking with Pete Carroll and John Schneider the other day that you know, this all could have been avoided. They wouldn't have had to trade their franchise quarterback if they would have just signed him six years ago or even two years ago. Uh, but ultimately, he ended up staying in Denver, had a very successful five years there. And I think he's one of the more underrated defensive linemen. We talked about this when the trade first happened, that Harris, as you mentioned, some might view him as just kind of an add-on. But this is a guy that is a already proven, established, versatile defensive lineman that is perfect for a 3-4 scheme because of his positional versatility. He's had at least 27 pressures each of the last three years. He's also generated six sacks in two of those seasons. And, oh, by the way, he's got 16 pass deflections at the line of scrimmage. So when he's not sacking or pressing quarterbacks, he finds ways to impact plays by sticking his big paws up in the air and swatting the football down. This is a very good football player that's had high run grades from pro football focus for the last five years. Last year was the first down season for him by that standard. Still had a very solid year, though, for the Broncos. He can do a little bit of everything and just everything he's been through to get to this point. As you mentioned, you know, the, the term coach in the field gets thrown around a lot. But this guy truly is going to be that for the Seahawks, not just because this is a scheme that he's very familiar with, even not being exactly like Vic Fangio's defense. 
there's going to be a lot of carryover. And so he's going to be able to help out other guys along that defensive line when they bring in young players. He's going to be a mentor. So I think that this is, you know, maybe not the best long-term addition because he's a little older player, going to be 31 in August. Still got a ton of great football in front of him, though. Could end up in the short term being the best addition that they made in this trade. He's a really good football player. He is, and he's got a couple of things that are going for him just from a physical standpoint, besides just the intangibles and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think that there's there's going to be some Seahawks fans out there, Corbin, listening to the podcast and saying, like, yeah, this is a lot of fluff. You know, he he's – you know, is this guy really that good? Let me give you one of the reasons why he is that good. So he he's 6'2", 285 to 290 pounds. So you're kind of imagining this, you know, short, stubby, interior defensive lineman. But Corbin, he's got almost 35-inch arms. Yeah. And we've talked about this with the cornerback position, how Seattle has always kind of, you know, at least throughout most of, of the time that, that Pete Carroll has been here, he's always prioritized those 32-inch long cornerbacks. Well, if you just think about it, when the ball is being thrown down the field, if you have that type of length, it's just that much easier to be able to deflect those passes. You just talked about the fact that I believe that you said he had 17 uh, different passes that he knocked out the line of scrimmage. When you have the windspan, of a almost seven foot man as Shelby Harris has a six, two. Well, that's the reason why he is able to, to knock down some passes, why he is able to, to break free from some of those would be blockers. It's just like in a boxing match when they had the tail of the tape and you talk about the guy who has the longest reach. Shelby Harris has an incredibly long reach for a 6'2", 285, or 290 pound player. That, that's a frame that usually is somebody that you want to have inside. But he's got a frame that allows him to play outside as well. He had 32-inch vertical jump at, again, 290 pounds at his pro day. Now, that's a long time ago, but still, it just speaks to his explosiveness. This is a really intriguing player for the Seahawks. And I think that somebody that, that made a lot of sense for them to bring back. I think that the, the addition of Shelby Harris, as well as bringing back Quentin Jefferson, I think just kind of speaks to what Seattle is looking to do here. They know that they are going to have some young edge rush talent. And they already have that. Daryl Taylor and the free agent, Uchenon Tuoso, even if Seattle does not invest in early round selection in an edge rusher this year, which I expect them to, but even if they don't, they already have the young pass rushers right now who do need that coach on the field. Seattle already has those players in place. And I think that it's just going to be that much more important if Seattle does, as we expect, to invest at least one of those top three selections, either number nine, 40, 41, or perhaps more than just one of them. If they do invest those early selections on edge rushers and defensive linemen, you already have the coaches on the field here to be able to allow them to be successful early in their careers. He's had such a fascinating career to this point. Again, almost walked away from the game in 2016, lands with the Broncos because he stuck with it, and then had five really good seasons. Now he gets a chance to take his next step in his career, playing for a team that he's always revered, is always held in high regard, and he has a chance to be a key piece for a team that nobody's going to have expectations for, and maybe, just maybe, they can surprise some people with a really stout defense starting with great depth up front. It's time to continue our quarterback in transition series. Yesterday we talked Jim Zorn going to Dave Craig. Now we're going to fast forward to the early 90s. Our listeners, you might want to get a beverage or two for this next segment because we're going to be talking about what the Seahawks are going to try to avoid 
in the post-Russell Wilson era when we revisit the early 1990s. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that gives you the features of $200 sunglasses for a fraction of the price. That means polarized lenses, well-constructed durable frames, and premium high-end finishes. Also, something you won't find anywhere else is Shady Rays' insane protection program. Shady Rays includes a loss and broken protection on every single pair. They will send you a brand new pair if you lose them, no matter what happened. Give them a try, and if you don't love them, you'll pay nothing. It's as simple as that. Plus, 10 meals are donated to Fight Hunger in America when you shop with Shady Rays. And exclusively for our listeners, head to ShadyRays.com and use the code LOCKEDON to get 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. That's locked on for their best deal of the season. 50% off two or more pairs of Shady Rays sunglasses backed by over 150,000 verified five-star reviews. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And make sure to check out the Locked On NFL podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, as well as five days a week streaming on YouTube. We've got experts covering and analyzing all 32 teams. Great content all year round. Once again, on the Locked On NFL podcast. Make sure to check it out wherever you listen to your podcasts. Going to continue our series here, quarterbacks in transition. Obviously, the Seahawks are going to have a new quarterback under center come week one in September. Maybe it's Drew Locke. Maybe it's Jacob Eason. Maybe it's Baker Mayfield. Maybe it's a rookie. We don't know who's going to be under center at this point, but it won't be Russell Wilson. And this is the first and won't be the last time the Seahawks have had a major change at quarterback. Yesterday, we looked at Jim Zorn, succeeded by Dave Craig. Today, we're going to look at a transition that didn't work near as well in 1992. Dave Craig, as we talked about yesterday, Rob, had such a fantastic career in Seattle. I think an underrated career compared to a lot of the quarterbacks from his era. His numbers stack up favorably against a lot of Hall of Famers. Three-time Pro Bowler, led the Seahawks to the playoffs four times. Big arm, put up big numbers. Played on some teams that weren't as good late in his career, though, and they reached that point where... 1991 going into 1992, Chuck Knox leaves. They have a new coach coming in in Tom Flores. He's the general manager. He decides it's time to make a change at quarterback. They had drafted Dan McGuire the year before. Craig missed six games with an injury. They just decided we're going to go young at the quarterback position. Their hope was that Dan McGuire was going to be the quarterback in 1992, but it became very clear early in Dan McGuire's career that Not only was it a bad first-round pick, but this guy was simply not an NFL quarterback, and it put him into a position where they were playing musical chairs at quarterback. And I think 1992, the Seahawks may have had the worst quarterback situation in NFL history. That's how bad it was. Which, that's saying a lot. I mean, my goodness. You you think about just NFL history and and all 32 franchises as we know them now and and how many times that you you go back through history and you just see some of the teams that have just struggled for so, so long at the quarterback position. And yet I would agree with you, Corbin. That 1992 season in Seattle at the quarterback position, I mean, you're talking about some really – truly horrific quarterback play. And of course, one of the things we try to do uh, on our podcast is, is try to just be positive. 
and and, and think back, uh, you know, with you know a, a little bit of respect of some of the great players in Seattle's history. And as we talked about yesterday, in the transition from Jim Zorn, who didn't necessarily have the most, you know, wasn't necessarily the most physically gifted quarterback that you've ever seen out there. But my goodness, number ten was exciting, and and he was inspirational. And then to be able to have a pretty seamless transition from Jim Zorn to Dave Craig, at least in terms of the Seahawks ascending when it came to playoff experience and things like that. I mean, you know, you go back to those early eighties years when Dave Craig was number two in the NFL in passing touchdowns behind only Dan Marino. I believe that was the 83, four season. I mean, you had some spectacular play, but my goodness, the early nineties were difficult. I mean, it's the kind of thing that makes you want to just grab yourself a beer and, and buckle down because it, it was tough. I mean, there, there's some names out there that you want to mention because that's what we do. We, we talk about the, you know, the Seahawks good and bad of the past, but you don't want to mention because Corbin, there's a possibility that some of our listeners are driving right now. I don't want any accidents <laughs> on, on the side of the freeway, you know, but I, I mean, my good, I mean, the, the, I'll mention one of the guys who actually thought was a little bit underrated during that time. And that being John freeze, but you, you look at the Jack Kemp's of the world, Kelly Stauffer, I mean, Kelly Stauffer was a guy that I watched Marty Stauffer's Wild America on TV highlighting like animals in the Pacific Northwest, mostly because I wanted his relative, Kelly Stauffer, to play a little bit of good football for the Seattle Seahawks because it was tough at times. And then, you know, over my lifetime, my favorite number, I literally have a Babe Ruth picture on my wall right now. My favorite number was always number three, and it was not because of Russell Wilson. It was because of Babe Ruth. It was because of Joe Montana, and it was because of the heroics that I saw from Rick Meyer at the at Notre Dame, wearing number three, just like Joe Montana. And so when Rick Meyer went to the Seattle Seahawks and I was, I don't know, freshman in high school, I thought, here you go. Now you're going to get good quality quarterback play, and instead – the Seattle Seahawks certainly did not get receive that. You, you mentioned uh, Dan McGuire. My, my favorite baseball player growing up was Mark McGuire. I absolutely bought into the idea as a young man that, that Dan McGuire from San Diego State might be able to be that guy. Instead, it was easily the most horrific period of time in Seattle Seahawks history at the quarterback position. And so that's the thing is that you are hoping that Seattle is going to be able with Pete Carroll and John Schneider, be able to, to manage this transition a heck of a lot better than the Seahawks were able to do in the early 1990s. It's unfortunate because Tom Flores, and he did just get into the hall of fame for his great work with the Raiders and he deserved it, but man, his tenure in Seattle was rough. And the biggest reason why is because they just completely misfired on the quarterback position when they let Craig go, I think if you look back at that, Craig ended up having a couple more good seasons as a starter in the league. He led the Chiefs to the playoffs in 1992. So he still had some good football in him. But I think the decision on its own made sense. The problem was that they just completely botched the transition because Dan McGuire, he showed in 1991 on the practice field, like this kid was not ready for prime time. He was not ready to be a start, finished with less than five touchdown passes in his entire career, one of the bigger quarterback busts that you're going to find. And then they had Kelly Stoffer. They had, and the name is so bad that I'm not even remembering it right now, uh, Stan Gelbaugh. <laughs> I mean, uh, we're mentioning Stan Gelbaugh on the podcast, wearing number 18. 
You had him, Stauffer, McGuire. I just got to make sure that he's getting his drink here. You had those three quarterbacks combining. This is why I think 1992 ranks up with the worst quarterback play we've ever seen. Those three quarterbacks combined through nine touchdown passes and 23 interceptions. The numbers were horrific, even by early 90s standards where – you know, teams were still not throwing the ball near as much as what they do in today's NFL. That was the, the passing numbers are just atrocious. It didn't matter who was under center. So with a year that bad, they quickly moved on to drafting Rick Meyer in 1993 with their top five selection, which made sense. It, solid kid at Notre Dame, as you mentioned, always seemed to come up big for the fighting Irish. I grew up in Indiana. My parents were huge Notre Dame fans. So they were thinking this kid's going to be something special. He's the next Joe Montana coming from Notre Dame to start in the NFL. And he had a solid rookie season, almost 3,000 passing yards. And Seattle went from 2-14 and 14 in 92 to 6-10 and 10 in 93. There was a sense of optimism in the Pacific Northwest. Unfortunately, Rick Meyer flushed that down the drain over the next three years, including his last two seasons in Seattle, where he threw 18 touchdowns compared to 32 interceptions. And they had John Freeze replace him in the starting lineup. I and mean, that's how bad it got. Dennis Erickson's like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. John Freeze, lifelong backup, you're my starter. Because clearly Rick Meyer's not the guy. And finally, Warren Moon comes in in 1997. Old man Warren Moon still was way better than any of the quarterbacks the Seahawks had there for a five-year stretch. And it at least led to a little more stability at the position leading up to Matt Hasselbeck. But man, those early 90s. The quarterback roulette that they were playing with none of these guys being starter caliber players. It's unfortunate because there were some really good defenses during that time period with Cortez Kennedy and a number of other guys, Eugene Robinson, those players anchoring those defenses. These could have been really competitive playoff teams with an average quarterback, but they didn't get lucky enough to even have that from 1992 to 1996. Yeah, it just underscores the incredible value, incredible importance of the quarterback position. Um, we're talking about guys like a, a Stan Gelbaugh, who, again, I, I don't want to be dismissive of his talent. Certainly more gifted than I ever was. Um, but at the same time, obviously was not able to to help Seattle actually win football games. Um, and then you talked about some of the, you know, kind of the, the sun reappearing on, you know, in Seattle and being Warren Moon and, you know, just absolutely phenomenal player and, and a really cool story, him coming back to the Seattle area after obviously being a superstar at the University of, of Washington. Speaking of local guys doing well, John Kitna kind of taking over for him at, at that point, the, the Lincoln High School, Tacoma, Washington, Central Washington graduates um, and, and coming to Seattle and helping them. And then, of course, when things really got rolling is when Mike Holmgren brought Matt Hasselbeck, who he had known from his days in Green Bay to Seattle. And, of course, you know, that, that's where history kind of writes itself from a Seattle Seahawk perspective. And that, to me, is one of the real themes that we got to kind of come back to a little bit here, I think, Corbin, is that you, know, you look back and – with, with the transition the Seahawks faced between Jim Zorn and Dave Craig, then then you had a you know you had the guy there. He was able to learn how your franchise operates with with Dave Craig learning that from Jim Zorn. You had that with Mike Holmgren kind of teaching that to. 
uh, you know, to, to Matt Hasselback, uh, you know, and then obviously with, with Seattle and, and, and Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, what they were able to do. That is what is going to be fascinating. And, and the first time in franchise history, if Seattle is able to do it here with Pete Carroll and John Schneider, to be able to bring in a second quarterback in the same head coach and general manager regime to have any kind of success, you know, I, I salute you. Uh, Pete Carroll and John Schneider, because what you are being asked to do at this point would be historic. And so this is an intriguing quarterback class. I think there's some guys that, uh, that that make some sense, if not this year, then perhaps next year. And I think that Drew Locke has an awful lot of talent as well. So I am going to be interested to see. I certainly hope that you're not going to drive Seahawks fans to drink the way I was kind of mimicking here uh, for us, because the, certainly those early 1990s were a very difficult time from Seahawks history. When we return, we're going to fast forward back to the present. The Seahawks could always use another edge rusher or two. Luckily for them, there are a lot of options in a deep and talented draft class. Rob and I are going to be taking a look at several of those players that could be in consideration for pick number nine. And in the second round, when we return, speaking of options, if you're like me and you're trying to keep your New Year's resolution going here in April, You've got to roll with Built Bar. It's the best protein bar on the market. Tastes like a candy bar, 100% chocolate. Built Bar Puffs, absolutely delicious. They are protein-infused marshmallows with 100% chocolate, less than 200 calories, and amazing flavors like banana cream pie. They've also got their regular Built Bars like peanut butter brownie, my personal favorite, as well as salted caramel and orange cream. They're coming out with new flavors every single month, so make sure to check them out at built.com and see what they are cooking up this month on the flavor spectrum under 200 calories under five net carbs 17 grams of protein it's the perfect pre-workout snack even post-workout snack or just snack in general way healthier than a candy bar make sure to check out built.com and use the code lock 15 to get 15 percent off your order that's built.com to get 15 percent off using the code lock 15. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, Rob Rang. We've got a big draft coming up in less than four weeks, Rob, in Las Vegas. The Seahawks with a top 10 pick for the first time since 2010. John Schneider and Pete Carroll's first year with the organization. They have pick number nine, which they got back in the Russell Wilson trade. We talked offensive tackles yesterday. Another area of need, one that is a chronic need for the Seahawks, pass rush. They do have Daryl Taylor. They just signed Uchenna Nuosu, who they believe is going to be a nice addition, playing that hybrid defensive end linebacker role coming over in free agency. But they lost Carlos Dunlap. They got rid of Benson Mayo as well. They certainly could use another pass rusher, and this is one of the better pass rushing classes we've seen. Maybe not quite as good as the 2020 group, but it's close. This is a group that's got a lot of talent and a lot of depth, and there could be as many as three or four edge rushers that go in the top 10 or 11 picks. So certainly the Seahawks will be considering a number of those players, starting with Kayvon Thibodeau from Oregon, who looked like a consensus top three pick for most of this pre-draft process, but now it looks like he might potentially still be there around the time the Seahawks pick at number nine overall. 
Theoretically, he could be. I mean, he, he's still absolutely among the elite talents in this draft class. And so if he were available to see out number nine overall, as we talked about yesterday, Corbin, with, uh, you know, the, the idea of John Schneider doing some, uh, you know, kind of cartwheels down the, the carpet line, if Kayvon Thibodeau is available, or frankly, Jermaine Johnson, the second from Florida State, if either one of those pass rushers are available, I think that has got to be a very, very strong consideration for the Seahawks at, at number nine overall. And as we talked about just yesterday at the offensive tackle position, that has been Seattle's highest priority when they have used their first round selections. There's been eight first round selections since Pete Carroll and John Schneider teamed up together in 2010. And of those eight, three have been offensive tackles, but of those 12 years, Four times Seattle's number one pick has been an edge rusher. And of course, half of that time has not been in the first round. Guys like Malik McDowell, for example, um, were, were selected in, in the second round. Frank Clark was also selected in the second round. So let's not just make it sound like it's always been a, a bust. Sometimes Seattle is absolutely hit with these pass rushers. But the point is, is that edge rushers or just rushers in general, Malik McDowell, you could argue is a defensive tackle at his size, but still he played a lot of end as well. But dominant defensive linemen, dominant pass rushers have been a huge priority for the Seahawks in the past. And as you talked about, this is a really good draft class. This is only the second time that Seattle has ever had a top 10 selection with Pete Carroll and John Schneider at the helm. So again, as I mentioned yesterday, I think this is really is going to be a conversation about who is the best offensive tackle, who is the best edge rusher available, and whoever Seattle has higher rank between those two positions, that's the pick. There, there's no crazy, uh, you know, uh, you know, conversation to be had. Who is the best at those two positions? Who is available? I think that is the the natural progression of how Seattle is going to think when it comes down to this draft pick. So again, I think that Kevon Thibodeau is very much going to be in play. I think that Jermaine Johnson for Florida State is going to be very much in play, and for good reason because both of them look like the kind of guys who can come in and make an immediate impact, especially when you consider what Seattle already has in Nuoso, as you mentioned, as well as Daryl Taylor on the other side yeah i think that thibodeau and you know potentially there jermaine johnson those are the two players that i think maybe you have the best chance to get at number nine aiden hutchinson as far as i'm concerned already has a jaguars uniform in his house i think that he is the number one selection based on everything that's being thrown around out there maybe the jaguars will change their mind before the draft later this month but it looks all signs are pointing towards hutchinson being gone at pick number one so i don't see any way that the Seahawks are going to be able to get a hold of him. Certainly going to be out of contention for his services, but maybe somebody like Thibodeau falls with questions about his motor, uh, questions about his interest off the field. I don't necessarily understand that particular argument for why he would fall, uh, but certainly a big-time talent that would being viewed as the number one pick for a lot of this pre-draft process. If you're looking at some other players that might make some sense here, I think we are now falling into that area, that gray area, kind of with Charles Cross yesterday, where I think there are some other really intriguing first-round caliber pass rushers that I wouldn't necessarily reach for at pick number nine. So this re-enters that idea, let's trade down. And I'm going to talk about a player that until about two months ago was being looked at by many as a second or third-round pick, but... I am squarely on 
the Boye Mafe train from Minnesota. This guy is such a freak athlete. I think his vertical jump is like 80 inches at this point. I mean, this guy is just a freak at 260, 265 pounds, is still learning the game, was really raw when he went to Minnesota, but he had good numbers last year, and he was near unblockable at times in the senior bowl. So this is the guy that just seems like he's barely scratching the surface of his potential. He's more technically refined than you would expect from a pass rusher that is is pretty raw and has only been playing football for, for a handful of years. But that would be a guy that I think if the Seahawks traded down to, like, say, pick 20 with the Pittsburgh Steelers, if they dropped down 11 picks to recoup another second-round pick, I don't think you'd be reaching for Boye Mafe picking him at number 20 overall. In fact, I will be surprised if he gets out of the mid-20s. I think he is a first-round pick later this month. I agree with you 100%. I think that he is that explosive of an athlete. I, I think that the, the pass rushers are, are that critical. Um, you know, in, in my opinion, the, the number four pass rusher in this class would be Jermaine Johnson. And I think you can make a strong argument uh, between he, uh, Mafe, and his fellow Big Ten opponent, uh, George Kalaptis from, from Purdue that who might be number five, but I think that those are the two guys who would be at number five Oh five among the pass rushers. And you normally would say five among the pass rushers as if that's not a, a big thing. That's a top 15, top 20 selection. This year draft class, a defensive rookie of the year kind of candidate, really good football players. In my opinion, Corbin Jermaine Johnson was the best player on the field at the senior bowl. That's why I, I love the length. I love the physicality. I love the, the success in different schemes that he had at Georgia as well as Florida State. When his one season there, he was just the ACC defensive player of the year. That would be my selection. Kayvon Thibodeau, I love the explosiveness and the, the physicality. The, the fact that he played up and down, I think is a little bit of a concern, but I still think that he is very much worthy of number nine overall consideration if he were if he were to be available at that spot i i'm intrigued by a guy like mafe i don't necessarily like him at number nine but as you talked about in a possible trade down mafe would be a guy that i think that would make a lot of sense Kerloftis to me is a little bit more of a classic four three defensive end i don't think that he has quite the athletic ability to be able to drop back and and, and do all the things you're asking three four rush linebackers to do but you, you look at some of the other guys. Ibikitty from, from Penn State would be another one. There's mm -hmm. a lot of intriguing guys. So if Seattle does go, let's say, with the offensive tackle at number nine overall, there's enough pass rushers, more pass rushers, in my opinion, than their offensive tackles, that you could go with the offensive tackle at number nine and come back with a pass rusher at 40 or 41. I don't necessarily think you can do the flip side. If you go with a tackle, or excuse me, if you go with the edge rusher at number nine, the tackles of 40-41, I think, and if you're looking for a left tackle, it weakens out pretty quickly. Yeah, there definitely is more depth at the edge rusher position. So I think that is something that the Seahawks have to keep in mind. But again, you want to make sure you're picking the best player available at number nine, in my opinion. You cannot reach for a pass rusher that maybe is not worthy of that number nine pick. You need a game changer. So if that means Sauce Gardner is your best player there at number nine, you go get Sauce Gardner if you can't get a trade down. If you can't recoup picks, I mean, there's so many different moving parts here. But when I look at the second round, to me, Arnold Ebicati is probably a guy that is borderline first rounder, early second. So that might be a player that is in play for the Seahawks. If they didn't pick edge in the first round, might be there for them at 40, 41 range. And there are a couple other guys that could make some sense there. It might be a little early for a player like Nick Benito out of 
Oklahoma, but I could certainly see Drake Jackson from USC being a player that could make a lot of sense at that position. So there are a number of intriguing edge rushers. And I, what I really like about this group is if you somehow don't hit on a pass rusher in those first three picks and you go different positions, there are a lot of guys on day three that I think could potentially be difference makers that you could go out and get in the fourth round or even in the fifth round. It is that deep of a class. It, it is that deep. I'll, I'll give you two guys right off the bat that, that immediately jump out to me as far as guys who are not getting uh, you know, a, enough attention. Actually, three guys. I was going to say Sam Williams from Ole Miss is one of the very first guys. Amari Barno from Virginia Tech. D'Angelo Malone from West, Western Kentucky. Those are all guys who are not going to necessarily be top 50 selections, but I think have the traits to be dynamic off of the edge. Not necessarily as your number one guy. You have to have somebody else who is that ace. And I think the Seahawks potentially have that with Daryl Taylor, as we talked about before, really intrigued by Nuosu as well. But if you are looking for somebody else who has some twitch, has some bend to them, those three players that we just mentioned might be available past the number 41 overall selection. Might be one of the reasons why Seattle does decide to get a little bit cute. Maybe not go with the pass rusher number nine overall because they feel really good about the success that they've been able to have in the middle and later rounds every year in the NFL draft. You stole my one selection for early on day three, potentially. D'Angelo Malone, another player that had a really good senior bowl coming from Western Kentucky that I think really projects well to that hybrid linebacker in a 3-4 scheme that Seattle's leaning towards. Be fun to rotate a guy like that in with Daryl Taylor and Uchenna Nuoso. And, of course, one of those other names that we've mentioned as well, the bigger names, guys like Boye Mafe that are still kind of raw but can really get after the quarterback have the athleticism to be able to drop in coverage. There are a lot of really intriguing names. One last name I want to throw out here, though. This is a guy that would have probably been a top 10 pick if he would not have been hurt. And I I call this a Jeffrey Simmons scenario. But David Ajabo from Michigan, who a lot of people were viewing as a home run, top five, top six selection potentially, at least top 10, he ended up tearing his Achilles in Michigan's Pro Day. So who knows if he's going to be available at all this year. It could be a redshirt season for him in 2022. But look what Jeffrey Simmons became for the Titans. They drafted him after he tore his ACL. He came back midway through his rookie season, and he's been a superstar ever since. One of the best all-around defensive tackles in the league. Ajabo is coming back from an injury that now is not near as scary as it used to be. The Achilles injury, guys are coming back at a much better success rate from that injury. He's really young. He is still a very raw player that's got a lot of room to grow. That would be the kind of guy, even 40 or 41, if you haven't picked your pass rusher yet, I might be able to get a blue chip, all pro caliber player early in the second round. Even if he's not going to be able to play right away for me, it might be worth the risk at that point because of how talented this kid is. It absolutely would be worth the risk at that point. I would argue that it might be worth the risk in the seventh round if Seattle were to invest or some other NFL team were to invest a draft pick in Adam Anderson, the edge rusher from Georgia, who does have significant off-field considerations that any NFL team needs to consider. But at the same time, just in terms of what he can do on the football field, we're talking about another blue chip prospect as well. So again, To your point, Corbin, there are a lot of really good edge rushers in this draft class. You don't necessarily have to invest a top 10 selection in one of them. You just have to make sure that you get a guy who is committed uh, to to having his greatest success moving forward. 
As always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And make sure to check out the Locked On NFL Draft podcast hosted by our good friends Ryan Tracy and former NFL cornerback Eric Crocker. They're bringing the NFL Draft to life every day with insight and analysis on college football prospects and NFL front offices. It's free and available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang as well. Make sure to check out the Locked on Seahawks podcast. We have our audio podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other major platforms. We also stream video podcasts five days a week on YouTube. So make sure to subscribe. Coming up on Thursday, going to continue preparing for the draft, shifting back to the offensive side of the football, checking out some center prospects back in the trenches, and going to continue our quarterback in transition series, looking at the late 90s, kind of hit on it a little bit today, but the Warren Moon, John Kitna era heading into the 2000s. Thanks for listening in. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Go Hawks.